Hello, this is Mike Van Meter. Welcome to the Recovery is Possible podcast. And I want to thank you for joining me. You can reach us at our Facebook site, which is also called Recovery is Possible, and our website, which is vanmeterwellnesssolutions.com. So this podcast exists to educate the public about addiction, remove the stigma associated with addiction, and offer help and support to those suffering from addiction. And so today we're going to be talking about Scotland. So those of you that listen to this podcast know that I've interviewed a few people from uh, Recovery Dundee, which is an organization located in Dundee, Scotland. And I've posted some articles to the Facebook site about um, the drug issues that are that are going on over there. Unfortunately, Dundee is listed as the drug death capital of Europe, and it's a real problem. And I interviewed a woman named Sharon Webster earlier, uh, early, uh, in one of the podcasts earlier this year, and she talked to us about the problem and talked about some organ, you know, Recovery Dundee, which is an organization that she's working with. And uh, she pointed me to a, a young man named um, Darren McGarvey. Now, Darren McGarvey is very well known in Scotland. He's written a book called Poverty Safari, which I've read and I recommend it. It's a really good, interesting read. Uh, very, um, Kind of non-standard in how it was written, to be honest. Uh, it, the chapters in it are uh, kind of short, and, and they're like various topics. And I found myself really intrigued by it, you know, coming home every night and, and reading one chapter. And they're short chapters, so you get a flavor of, you know, of what Darren was going through. You hear about his childhood. You hear about uh, uh, the work that he does in, in recovery. And Darren... Uh, Darren's book was also the winner of the Orwell Prize in 2018, and um, and it's it won a number of other prizes as well. And Darren's going to talk about that. But Darren's an interesting individual. He he is an author. He's been on a um, uh, some BBC series. He'll he'll talk about that here in a moment. And um, is just a recovery warrior in in Scotland, and and talks about a lot of the different issues that lead towards addiction in in Scotland. And so with that, we have Darren McGarvey on the show. Welcome, Darren. Hello. How are you, Michael? I am doing great. And I, I really appreciate you taking time to come on to the podcast and and really introducing yourself to the, the listeners in this audience. And for those that are listening, this is the first time that Darren has been on a podcast in the United States. So with that, I'm really excited because this is the introduction. This is the first time. And I have, uh, Darren's also a rapper. And so if you have not seen his videos, I recommend um, looking him up on uh, Google, look him up on YouTube, and you can see a lot of the work that he's done. And, and I actually really like a lot of the songs that you've put out. And I don't even typically like rap music, but I really like your work, Darren. So thanks for that. And so just tell us a little bit about yourself and what it is that you do. No problem. That's perfect. Um, uh, just now I am obviously like everyone around the world trying to juggle the challenges of lockdown, which is particularly severe in the UK right now uh, with my professional obligations, family obligations, and obviously recovery obligations. So some days I'm able to square off that circle better than others um, but it's certainly an interesting time and uh, I'm one of the lucky ones I'm, I'm, I'm glad to say. Well it's fantastic and so Darren 
uh, you know, you do a lot of things, and and you're involved in. And I'm just very impressed with uh, you know the film work that you're doing, rapping, writing, uh, community work. Um, but like all of us in recovery, there's there's a reason why we're here. And so maybe just kind of briefly go through what 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 brought you to this point? Why this work? What what's what brought you to this point? Well, I I was raised in a traditionally working class community and working class in the in the British sense. I know that in the United States, um, everyone thinks they're middle class, um, but in in uh, in the eighties and nineties when I uh, was raised, there was a lot of social deprivation. And uh, this this found expression in urban dereliction, political exclusion, um, the violent severing of social bonds and connections within communities due to uh, entire entire areas being demolished and, and and residents being dispersed, and this was all underscored by a massive economic transition, which displaced. Uh, millions of people in terms of their their geographical relationship to employment opportunities. So it really it, it slowed down social mobility to the extent that many communities became idle and when public services were withdrawn, they were replaced with the free market. And the free market um, in, in poor areas tends to provide uh, goods and services which are not necessarily conducive to public health, shall we say. So the, the primary occupations of many troubled families became alcohol and drugs, and then we had a heroin epidemic. Um, and so I was raised really in that, uh, in that environment and was uh, exposed to that environment as a child. And then, as I as I grew up, uh, other other aspects of my family were more politically conscious and communitarian in spirit, and so it was all it was all part of the complex uh, influences that shaped who I am today, which is an alcoholic addict in recovery, but also a dedicated uh, campaigning writer, broadcaster, a community artist of 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 considerable experience. Um, and it's just part of who I am, really. So when you say that you, you grew up in that area, by the way, uh, much of Darren's childhood is documented in the book, and, and I thought you did an excellent job at doing that, and it, it was pretty rough. And I think, Darren, that you know, here in the United States, and me, and I'll, and I'll speak for me, I actually was not aware of the deprivation that was occurring in Scotland. I think that most Americans just kind of assume that, you know, Scotland and the UK in general is a lot like the, the standard of living and the, the economy is a lot like it is here in the United States. And I was really surprised to see that, that really just, you know, this, this rigid class system that you're talking about, it, it doesn't really exist in that way here in the United States. And, and that's a whole nother discussion for another time. But uh, the bottom line is that it sounded like you were raised in this area where there, it didn't seem like there was a lot of hope, uh, not a lot of way to escape. And you, you grew up in a family that uh, alcoholism was certainly a big part of that. Maybe drug addiction was a big part of that. Yes. And, and you, you fell into that. And so if you could just kind of take us through that and you know what that did to your life. Absolutely. How did it affect you? Absolutely. Well, from a young age, uh, 
Um, when you're in an alcoholic home, my father wasn't an alcoholic. He worked. He was away f- from home a lot working. So that left me at home with uh, my mother, who was a very serious drinker and uh, heroin user at times as well. So when you grow up in that sort of environment, you go through various um, psychological adaptations in order to um, remove yourself out of harm's way. Uh, so you, you become very intuitive to the adults around you who, whose behaviour is increasingly unpredictable. And in many ways, you mature beyond uh, your years uh, as a you know six, seven-year-old. You are constantly on high alert. You become hypervigilant. And this means that you, you struggle to be at ease in more socially normal circumstances, such as a classroom uh, or, or a friend's household. And, and so I found that from an early age, uh, I was very, uh, lived in my own head a lot. I was, I was um, susceptible to, to fantasies and escapism of different sorts, used to tie towels around my neck and pretend I was a superhero and things that normal kids do. Um, but, but I found that even when I was playing, even when I was, I was involved in activities, uh, it was difficult for me to to really switch off that racing mind. So that that really primed me to um, to enjoy the the pleasant effect produced by alcohol when I when I first tried it. And it wasn't really until my mother passed away when I was aged sixteen, she uh, died of of liver cirrhosis which had been brought about by hepatitis C. Mm-hmm. And and I remember the first beer that I had at her funeral and that being a beer that I, I, I enjoyed. And I remember wanting another beer after it. And then I remember going back to school after the funeral um, and all of my, my, my suit and jacket and all of that. And I was a bit drunk, really, to be honest. Um, but I, I sort of felt like I had a force field on. Uh, there was a there was a new sense of confidence. There was um, the uh, recognizing that I was the center of attention, and so you know that was the beginning really of all of those ingredients that that lead to uh, you know alcohol and substance misuse problems. But it's important to add briefly, um, my childhood is not uncommon. Uh, what is uncommon that a person from my kind of uh, background uh, gets a large public platform to talk about their experience. So often that creates the impression that what I got, what I went through as a child is, is um, extremely rare and horrific. Um, but actually that there were, there were many positive aspects of my childhood. My father encouraged us to be artistic and creative. He, he wasn't for rushing us out the door into the first precarious job that, that we could find. He, he was all about us uh, being ourselves and not letting the the, the rhythms of a, of, a, of a socially deprived area uh, pull us down. But obviously when it was difficult, it was very difficult. And that was baggage that I carried right through my teenage years. I became homeless. I had various mental problems, an entourage of professionals looking after me in a homeless hostel. Um, but I just couldn't get it together because by that time the alcohol had got its claws in me. I developed a taste for um, 
uh, sedatives and benzodiazepines and and really that was on and off for about 10 years until I got my first day sober in 2013. Mm. And now how much of that do you think, uh, because there's always this you know, and I've seen it in treatment, and I, you know, I've seen it in my my own case as well. Um, alcohol and drugs—it's hard to—it's hard to tell if somebody is having serious mental health issues when they're using drugs and alcohol. And you know, we in in treatment, we always work with with people, and first and foremost, get them off of whatever it is that they're using and observe them, so you can look at and determine whether actually there is mental illness there. Because a lot of times, it's the substance that's causing the yes. appearance of mental illness. How much of that do you think affected your your case? Do you think? Well, that that was that was um, that was a key feature of my uh, descent into. The, the labyrinth that is mental health services uh, that, that at that time did not really understand uh, large part because many in the profession uh, either um, haven't got direct experience of addictions or alcohol or they do and they're in the grip of an addiction themselves and therefore they, ha- they have various blind spots to it. So, you know, I would, I would uh, present at GP surgeries, saying that I was hearing voices, that I was uh, hallucinating, mm-hmm. that I was having trouble sleeping, that I felt suicidal. I remember one instance where I, I felt I couldn't even speak to the, the doctor, so I, I, I wrote a letter and just gave them the letter to read in the surgery. Um, and so I was prescribed uh, antidepressants, I was prescribed uh, diazepam, I was prescribed sleeping medication at different points. But what would happen is because I wasn't aware that part of the the reason I felt so mentally unstable was because of the corrosive uh, physical and mental effects of alcoholism, then I I walked around blind to Mm -hmm. the fact that I was becoming a drunk, but also believing that I had a grave mental disorder that was so mysterious that mental health professionals couldn't even diagnose it and these are the these are the perfect conditions for serious alcoholism and addiction to incubate because when you're not when 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 the addiction is a without uh, any attention being paid to it, either by the sufferer or by the people observing the sufferer, then the, the, the condition of addiction tends to accelerate mm-hmm. in those circumstances. And so I, I went for many, many years, but I went for many years uh, waiting to be diagnosed with bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, uh, and it subsequently, it turned out, you know, my yeah. main problem was yeah. the alcohol. And any time I've managed to arrest this, any time I've managed to arrest this illness, then uh, any mental health problems that I experience, uh, they, subs- they, they, they decrease dramatically to the extent that when they do flare up, it's not very difficult for right. me to pinpoint the root, co- the root cause. Right. And you know, what's, what's interesting that you mentioned that, Darren, is, and, I, and I've, I've seen this with my own eyes over the, the last nine years or so that I've been in recovery, and, and I've also read some literature on this, that, uh, and I'm talking about America here, but I, I can't imagine the UK is very different. I, I read once that... Three um, percent of the population of the United States actually has, um, or no, I'm, I'm a correction. About one percent of the American population actually has a mental illness that really can't be addressed through medication, through therapy, or whatever. It's just truly mentally ill, right? One percent, and 
uh, people that come into a typical AA meeting, let's say, Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, 100% of the people that come through the door present as though they have a mental illness going on. But uh, the same article that I read said that after a year to a year and a half of continuous sobriety, the rate of true mental illness of the people in AA meetings are back down to the, the same proportion that the rest of society has, and that's 1%. What that yeah. leads you to believe then is it was drugs and alcohol that was causing the, the presentation of mental illness. It was yeah. not true mental illness. It was the substances that were creating the perception of mental yes. illness. So you're yes, describing that exactly. Absolutely. It's it, and important to say there are people out there who are using alcohol and drugs and they do have verifiable clinical oh, yeah. medical problems. Like that's, and that's, you know, not, not everything uh, can fall within the purview of 12 step fellowships. And we are aware of that within 12 step fellowships. It's outlined in the literature very mm-hmm. clearly that we should be uh, welcoming to medical professionals, psychotherapists and, and all the rest. Um, but specifically where this issue of uh, the overlap between the two, uh, part of the reason that, that we see, uh, we see uh, you know, a lot of confusion is because the, the actual phenomenon of addiction remains mysterious to so many people, both mm-hmm. within the medical establishment and in the wider society. And this creates a perfect storm where public misconceptions, political inaction, uh, prejudice, and then just good old-fashioned ignorance uh, mm-hmm. leads to a, a widely held belief that, that people are suffering for addiction or just beyond help. And then this is then reflected socially, culturally, politically through media institutions, through policies. And, uh, you know, in Scotland, this has created uh, a situation where a relatively small country that's uh, have has relatively decent resources um, now has the worst drug death mortality rate in, in the world and that is is rather shocking to me and I'm sure to, to many of your listeners. It was shocking to me I, I can tell you that I when I met Sharon and she told me about what's going on and then I went and I did research on this I was shocked and then I you know as I mentioned uh, to the listeners before, I'm involved in a graduate program through uh, Hazel and Betty Ford right now, and I, I've written some papers on it, and I, I turned my papers into my professors, and they were shocked at it. I, it just, I don't know why, uh, you know, here in, in the United States, we weren't aware of it, uh, but we weren't. And and I look at what's going on, and, and the reason why I think I'm fascinated by it now is I'm finding it is, is sort of almost a... Um, not just an academic, but a human concern of mine as to why. Why is it that way uh, in Scotland? Why is it that Dundee in particular is rated the drug capital of Europe? And in fact, um, even though in Dundee it appears that, or in Scotland in general, I should say, not just Dundee, that you all have really worked to implement drug reduction programs, the death rate has Increased, and I'm sure that that COVID nineteen and the lockdown, I'm sure that has contributed to that. But the but certainly the numbers are not going down, and that's of concern of me. And I have 
a couple of of my opinions so far based on and what I've looked at. But I'm interested, Darren, in in maybe your thoughts on that. It's not getting better, is it? The first thing to to note is that we don't actually know what the impact of COVID has been on the drug deaths, although anecdotal evidence suggests that the drug deaths have increased. The the recent drug death figure that was published in Scotland relates to 2019, and it was published very late because uh, of under-resourced toxicology services, which meant that it was difficult to verify uh, many of the deaths. So actually, the figure that we are looking at, which is just is one thousand two hundred and sixty four for two thousand and nineteen, mm. that might not seem high when you're when you're seeing it in the context of the the, the hundreds of thousands of opioid deaths in, in the United States, but per hundred people, yeah, but that's, that's a much smaller sick. country, yeah, exactly, exactly. So it's 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 a high rate uh, now, and in, in relation to Dundee specifically. Um, while obviously when you see the, the drug death stats and, and Dundee is, is labelled as the drug death capital, we automatically uh, imagine that it, Dundee is some kind of environmental hellscape where people are just dying in the streets injecting. Actually, a lot of the evidence points to uh, health systems being mm. um, implicated in this. So there were a number of, of, of uh, institutions which, uh, for example, refused to be investigated uh, aspects of the National Health Service, which, uh, you know, have, have a great degree of sway over the resources of uh, policies and the resources of community-based services. Then you have the harm reduction uh, strategy, which hasn't really shifted much in the last 30 years since it started to deal with the heroin epidemic. And so what you, you have uh, as well as that is a sense of resignation has crept in because when you go and speak to people who are living in Dundee, I spoke to one woman who lost 10 members of her own family. Mm. And so she was describing to me um, that uh, that a sense of resignation creeps into the, the communities where, where people are in active addiction because we know from our own experience of addiction that when we're in active addiction, we're looked after almost by other alcoholics and addicts in the sense that our immediate interests of obtaining and imbibing substances are taken care of because we are moving around in communities of other chaotic drinkers and drug users. So when word gets round that, that you know another person has died, um, then y- you can imagine that people use and drink more because that's how they deal with the grief and that's how they deal with emotion. And so, you know, many have theorised different uh, ideas for to explain why the deaths are so high. I suspect there's a combination of of deindustrialization, of of de- demolition and dispersal of communities, the severing of social bonds, but also right at the core of it, um, I think that the overprescription uh, of yeah. um, benzodiazepines uh, and opiate replacement therapies. Uh, in the 90s and and 2000s before they realised that actually now people are becoming addicted to diazepam. Um, Because what's happened is they overprescribed these drugs in poor communities where stress is a key factor and it didn't occur to them that there might be a high uptake for those drugs uh, because people uh, enjoy the nice effects produced by drugs like Valium. Um, or, uh, or, 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 or or other tranquilizer type drugs, 
And so then what the, the health service did was they, they, they cut, they stopped the prescription of these drugs very quickly. And that's akin to, you know, if someone goes into treatment with an, a severe chronic alcoholism, their alcohol supply can't just be cut. Yeah. You know, it has to be drawn down safely. And and so what, what's, what's happened is it's created a demand for counterfeit uh, drugs manufactured by drug dealers and distributors in the black market. But we don't know what's in these drugs. Some of them are 10 times stronger than Valium. Sometimes you get bad batches that kill people instantly. And so, you know, the biggest ingredient of this crisis is, is, the, is the absolute uh, mismanagement uh, or, or at various levels, various levels of governance and uh, in, in, in Scottish civil society. Well, it's that's yeah, I agree with you a hundred percent. And I think that uh, although not entirely a political problem, because I'm I'm not going to sit and point at the the government and say that this is a, a, a government problem, because it's a it's a problem on a lot of levels. It's it's multifaceted in where it's coming from. But I will say this, and I know this in my own journey, and and the people that listen to this program that know my background know that one of the reasons why I do this podcast and the things that I do is. Um, uh, after watching a really just a seminal documentary called Anonymous People, and I highly recommend that documentary. It was put out by Faces and Voices of Recovery. One of the theses in that um, documentary was that the people that should know better out there in society should be doing better don't. And, and, and that's largely because people who are in recovery have been trained uh, in a lot of areas to not talk about recovery and talk about what we know. Because, you know, people like you, Darren, people like me actually know what's going on in the communities and we know, uh, we understand addiction and we, we have answers and we have pathways for people to get better. But we've been trained in a lot of ways to not actually talk about it. And then you have the stigma associated with addiction. And that is that, you know, people don't want to talk about addiction because we're kind of looked down upon, frowned upon. There's this stereotype of the addict and the alcoholic. And so if you are somebody that um, has a platform like you do or like what I'm doing with this podcast, people don't want to put their names out there. And, but yet yes. the, the people, and these are people in the community that others will look to and say, hey, you know, if a guy like Darren can get well and, and he's talking about this and he's pointing the way and he's showing me a better way, you know, maybe I can do that too. But a lot of people don't go out in the public and talk about it. And um, it, consequently, we end up with political leaders and we end up with, you know, people that are in responsible positions that don't understand addiction. Therefore, and I think you have to start with understanding addiction and the disease model of addiction before yes. you can propose policies that will fix it. Because uh, from my perspective, and I cannot speak for the UK because I don't live there, but it seems like, you know, the NHS may be part of the problem because, um, uh, it doesn't seem like the goal in my my from what I've seen is the goal is not complete and total abstinence from substances. It is comp it is just harm reduction without going a step further and saying, you know what? Yes, maybe you shouldn't just didn't, shouldn't use anything. And that means anything mood altering, period, alcohol or drugs. Would you agree with that? Yes, but this is uh, yeah. I, I, I'm an advocate right. of abstinence based recovery and the power of example. And uh, while I certainly know that uh, uh, every individual situation has to be um, judged uh, wisely in terms of what the realistic possibility is of someone 
uh, achieving abstinence-based recovery within a certain period of time. Mm -hmm. uh, at the same time, I think that that should be the ultimate goal. But unfortunately, what we have is uh, in Scotland is, I mean, you hear people talking about political correctness, and this is a term that's thrown around a, a bit too frivolously, mm -hmm. in my view, today. Mm -hmm. But but where political correctness is really pernicious in Scotland is that you can't, well, you can, but you 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 will be judged harshly for saying that abstinence should be the goal. That will be really? taken as you being pre prejudiced against people who have been on methadone for a long time. We have a we have a charity in Scotland that's funded uh, by um, the the Scottish government. Is very has historically been very uncritical of Scottish government policy, including when the Scottish government cut money to services despite being warned it would lead to an increase in deaths, and they they spent. This, they, they produced a report recently, which is basically just a list of all the words, the lexicon of, of, of the drug sector and describing why certain words we shouldn't use. Words like recovery. Really? You know, like there's certain, yeah, because it, it's like we've got to be mindful that, that recovery means different things to different people. And uh, it was just, it was this document and I thought to myself, how much time has been spent? Uh, and how much money has been spent producing this, this uh, language policing uh, piece of policy research? Um, because uh, I think that we have the right as people who have managed to get into recovery to talk in terms that are suitable and appropriate for us. Um, so it, it, it really shows the, the, the vast distance, I think, sometimes between people who outwardly are acting in the interests of addicts, um, but but at the same time are engaged in in in, in political games um, that that don't serve anyone but themselves, and that's 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 part that's one of the fronts in this debate in Scotland because we have a recovery community which is very very active, very very mobilised, and we have a, a and we have a drug sector which is enmeshed with government. Um, and and they the only thing that they don't seem prepared to accept as part of the problem is themselves, and that's that's a big issue because that's an absence of humility. And if if one thousand two hundred and sixty four people perishing and in, in, in drug related deaths is not a cause for us all to have some humility, then I don't know what it will take. Yeah, and it's a complete lack of understanding because the you know Darren to me, this is not. This is not uh, a politically correct issue. It, it shouldn't be because uh, addiction is a disease. It's a disease of the mind and of the body. And this is based on people having a genetic predisposition towards addiction in, in all addictions, not just alcohol and drugs. It could be gambling. It could be sex. It could be eating too much, too little. It could be mm -hmm. uh, over-exercising, all of these different things. And that what, what listeners need to know is if you are listening to this podcast right now and you are struggling, what you have is a genetic predisposition that's caused. Now, what, what, what causes you to go drink or drug or do whatever else you do, it's something else. We call it causes and conditions. Something caused you to want to escape. And then you found that way to escape. But because of the genetic predisposition that you have, your body then goes through a cycle and a progression of addiction that will take you 
to your ultimate destruction because your body does not react to these substances the way that non-addicts do. And that's not anything that you have control over, just like you don't have control over having cancer or having uh, control over having diabetes or any other type of a disease. And there, um, and it has to be treated like it's a disease. And addiction is the one disease that can be put into absolute remission, and that's through not using. And that's not to put people down, and it's not meant to be politically correct. It's just that I know this. I know this, Darren, that since I've not put alcohol into my body, I've not had near the number of issues in my life, both physically, mentally, or in my social life that I had is when I was drinking. That's just a fact. You know, I don't have to drink. You don't have to drink. You don't have to uh, drug. And um, it's just a shame that that's not being, that the the policymakers aren't seeing that, that this is um, people's lives do get better. You can live drug and alcohol free, you know, and and, and it's just a shame that it's been politicized. Yeah, politicians unfortunately are only as good as is their advice. Is their advice, and and yeah. what we have in terms of a kind of network of advisors, um, as as this the, the government they've been giving the government the same advice for three decades now, um, which which obviously poses a number of problems. Uh, it means that whenever any new approaches or information comes to light, it's got to somehow find its way into that uh, system so that it can be mm-hmm. channeled in the right direction. And that is surprisingly difficult to do um, because, uh, you know, I think, you know, when, when, when uh, networks have been established over a long time, they're, they're naturally difficult to break. Um, and it, it just seems that while recently we've had a big rhetorical shift from the government and uh, commitments to significant increases in funding, access to rehabilitation treatment, and so on and so forth, all things that we were told weren't possible last mm-hmm. year, suddenly possible now, um, then at the same time, if you, it's a bit like a piping system, no matter how much money you put in it, no matter what you pump into it, it's all going to get pumped. It's all it's going to pr- out, produce the same output unless the actual structure is is addressed. So uh, that's that's going to be the next uh, phase of this uh, ongoing debate. Yeah, and 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 so Darren, I, and I agree with you. I think to me, I believe I think that the government's big responsibility in this is providing education, providing um, direction putting out the facts as it comes to addiction. But I, I know in my own life, and, and and I'll ask you your opinion on this, but I know that ultimately it was not the government or government policies that got me sober. What got me sober was just plain putting in the work and taking the advice and recommendations of people that I knew that had gotten sober and working the program itself. And I know uh, in your own life, you have done that. And um uh, maybe maybe kind of talk tell our listeners about so what it is what is it that you do what what and what advice would you give to the people in Scotland in your community uh, about sobriety what you know what's been your experience what's what's making this work for you my experience uh, is that whenever I am following the basic suggestions uh, that you will find in most recovery meetings. Uh, get to as many meetings mm-hmm. as you can. Uh, keep going back, no matter how you feel. Um, uh, you know, get a sponsor. Go through the twelve-step recovery program. 
have a, a, a spiritual awakening, a psychic change. Uh, whenever I'm following those basic suggestions, then uh, I, I am relatively free from the obsession to use or drink that dominated my entire field of vision for, for many years. What I find is that in times in the past, uh, through uh, arrogance uh, or through not a lack of on through a lack of honesty, I've become remote from recovery communities. I've become unmoored from the 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 teachings of the recovery communities, and subsequently, then I have have become prey to resentments and fear and dishonesty uh, and selfishness. And and these are the engine room. These are the engine room for me when I when I am uh, reacting to things all the time and and not taking time to to, to reflect, or when I am um, becoming aggressive, uh, when I am I'm, I'm 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 constantly just lost in thought with this circular dialogue about me 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 going on in my mind then it's a matter of time until uh, I actually have to use a substance or drink uh, to, to, to alleviate that suffering and all yeah. of the other chaos that you create in your interpersonal relationships, your jobs, responsibilities. So when I'm, when I'm, when I'm embedded in the recovery community, I'm relatively safe from this disease. Uh, however, uh, other people find different paths. I mean, some people cover and they, they have a deep experience, and they just they just go, they just go for it, uh, and they become amazing cornerstones of our community. My experience, I've been yeah. in, I've been in recovery on this journey for the last 12, 13 years, um, and some of that time, I've, but the, the, every day sober is a miracle, as far as I'm concerned, um, and and sometimes I think that. When we are are, are, are uh, concentrated so much on the problem of addiction, we don't give enough airtime to those who have found the solution, to those who have recovered, because it's it's only with the power of that example does an addict or an alcoholic begin to conceptualise what a life free of alcohol and drugs even entails, and and if we're not uh, if if we aren't holding up uh, great examples. Of, of people who are, are, are abstinent and not just abstinent, but really loving life, really enjoying life, no matter what the circumstances are uh, and, and approaching it with dignity and honesty and usefulness, then, then how do people get sober? You know, because it's, it's, um, if you, if you, if all you've known is alcohol and drugs and sadness, then, uh, you know, the concept of sobriety is so abstract that it's not going to uh, pique your curiosity for long enough to begin charting out what that road looks like. So I, I definitely feel more emphasis on the solution um, is, is, is extremely important. That's why I, I, I go back to my group reminder every other day uh, that if I take my foot off the gas, uh, then then I'm placing myself and my loved ones in danger. Yeah, and you, you've got to be in the center. You've got to be in the center of the raft, the center of the boat. You've got to. You've got to be all in, all into the program for it to work. And um, so 
have, did you find it very difficult to to find 12-step meetings to attend in Scotland, or are they, they pretty prevalent there? We have hundreds of meetings every week, uh, a number of fellowships um, across the country, uh, some obviously going longer than others. A is the most established than, than any mm-hmm. uh, behind that. But we have fellows, 12-step recovery groups and also, you know, kind of agnostic and atheist uh, versions of 12-step recovery uh, for all sorts of things. Um, and and uh, it was not difficult for me to uh, find that help when, when it was time to ask for it. Uh, the, the, the issue I think a lot of people have, uh, at least this was my experience, the first thing that people find off-putting with the, the 12-step program is the image that it has of being a kind of religious cult. And so I think there's a certain sort of vanity at play when, when I went into 12-step meetings for the first time, I had no problem with the God concept. I understood that, that, that for me, a conception of God could simply be uh, the radical idea that, that I don't know everything, you know, that, 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 that there's so many things out with my awareness. And, and, and really, I had to root my recovery in something larger than my own ego. And that was what God represented to me. Of course, there was this other voice in my head that was telling me, this is really embarrassing. You know, you, you're supposed to be cool. How can you go back into the hip hop community and, and be a guy who talks about God? And that was that was what it came down to. I wasn't resisting it on intellectual grounds. I wasn't worried about becoming some kind of mental slave to religion. My, my fear was pure vanity. It was, it was, embarrass- mm. it was embarrassment that an imaginary cohort of imaginary people in my mind would judge me for um, talking about God because that is not necessarily the coolest thing that you can do at a certain age in, in your life. And, and, and you know, everyone has a different experience with that. But I, 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 yeah. once, once I'm, you know, it's only by going back to the meetings that you get those insights because you hear other people share and then you identify and then you're able to put another piece of the jigsaw puzzle in. And before long, you, you have what looks like a picture, a discernible image of what, what life is like in recovery. And you're always finding another piece and sometimes pieces fall off out, out of it. And, and you know, sometimes you might flip the table over and say, fuck this jigsaw, you know, and have a really bad day. But but um, yeah. I, I find that just returning to that community and getting that message is is extremely important. You know, you know, Derek, it, it's funny to hear you say that because uh, you mentioned that it, it's a different experience for everybody. Because I would have never, you know, what you just described there about how you felt going into your first twelve step meetings and wondering, okay, I'm I'm heavy into the hip hop community, and and how am I going to be looked at? Um, it's funny because that's your experience. Now, in my experience, I'm, you know, I have a law enforcement and military background and it was kind of similar, uh, with me, but different. Um, this idea, step one of AA is I'm powerless over alcohol. My life has become unmanageable. That's step one. And, and that was what I struggled with that, that word powerlessness, right? That, that was not in my vocabulary. You know, I, I've been associated with the military or the police since I was 19 years old Mm. and, the idea that I could be powerless over anything 
was that's what I couldn't accept, right? And you know, here I am at this meeting, and look at me. I'm a you know a police officer. I'm an FBI agent. I'm you know this that. And it was the ego. You talked about that. It was having to put that ego in check and saying, well, yeah, I, I may be powerless over everything in my life, but alcohol is has power over me right now. And I had to surrender that. And it was that. It was the, um, you know, just that humility. Of saying that yes. in this one area, this is addiction is the one area in your life where you win the war by surrendering. That's how you win the yeah. war. And that's the only yeah. war. The only war known to mankind is you win it by surrendering. You, you put up that white flag. And when I surrendered and stopped fighting, and that's the ironic thing about it is you beat addiction by stop fighting it. And in that first part, yep. whether it's, you know, you can't go back into the hip hop community or you can't go back to your police department or you can't, you're a doctor or you're a lawyer, whatever, uh, whatever your profession is, um, you have to put that aside and just say, it's okay. It, you're not going to be shamed. And, you know, because I would, I'd be willing to guess that you've not been shamed in the hip hop community, have you? No, absolutely. You, no, you probably I, have more people no. come up and say, you know what, Darren, I'm so happy you're, you're well. That's probably yeah. what people are saying to you. Oh, absolutely. I mean, for, for me, it was a case of, for me, it was a case of there were no examples before me of anyone that I knew who had stopped drinking. So I was one of the first of my generation mm -hmm. in the hip hop community to actually uh, seek help for alcoholism. Um, and as you can imagine, in the music scene, alcoholism and drug abuse is, is rather part of the experience for many so it was it was a massive challenge to my conception of myself um to extricate myself from that community because mm -hmm. um i had built this image of me as as this life performer this wild character um and all of these friendships and social bonds which you know while while not entirely artificial certainly were necessitated in part by the the, the dangerous consumption of alcohol and all of the risk, uh, health risking behaviours that come with it. So actually, when I returned to the hip hop community uh, in sobriety, um, actually what happened was was people would then approach me and ask me, "How did you do this?" Um, or "You're looking mm -hmm. really well," or you know, and 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 to find that my music had had retained a certain quality despite the fact that I, I was no longer writing and recording it um, drunk. Um, to find that I was able still to access that emotional uh, honesty and that level of performance because I had anxieties because of myths permeated in society about the drunken genius. You know, you don't hear many myths. <laughs> being, you don't hear many myths about you know the drunken domestic abuser. You know, the drunken. It's always the artist and the artist this, and you don't realise what a, what an arsehole that artist probably is to people around them. You know. It's always just this yeah. genius burning the, the candle at both ends, creating a, a work of ma a, a masterful piece, writing a wonderful novel. And actually, you know, they're miserable and anyone who knows them is miserable. And that's the truth. You know, that's the truth of, of, of creativity that's fueled by that kind of addiction. And uh, I'm, I'm glad uh, I'm glad that save for, for, for a couple of slips here and there in the last 13 years that, um, I haven't returned to that madness, and, and I, I, I certainly today have no plans 
Oh, you know what, Darren? And you just gave me an idea, and we're gonna we're gonna close with um, you you kind of chronicling for the listeners some of the things that that you're working on. But I've got an idea for you because I I heard this once, and that is that we in our society, particularly American society, but I'm sure it's the same over there. What happens is we celebrate the destruction, the self destruction of people, particularly famous people, artists athletes, politicians, we, we celebrate that, particularly if it's drugs or alcohol and, and sex and, and that, that downfall, that mm. downfall. And they're in the newspapers and you go to the supermarkets and, and read in the tabloids about it. But you know what uh, you don't see a lot of, Darren? You don't see a lot of stories written about these people if and when they get well. And the fact is many people, because I, I actually know a lot of musicians and artists you know, here in the United States, many of them are actually in recovery and have been sober for quite a while. Yeah. I'm in the Washington, D.C. area. I, I know a lot of politicians um, in, in this area, you know, people that would be, you know, if you saw their face on television, um, they have, they are in recovery for drugs or alcohol. They're out there. The problem is in our society, we don't celebrate that. Yeah. So um, as you engage on, on, on future projects, I've just thrown that out to you. Maybe one of those would be, uh, you know, chronicling people that have gotten well, and and maybe let's celebrate that for a while. Well, no, Why don't I, we do that? Absolutely. Uh, no, you're you're totally right. I mean, there was um, I'm certainly just in the kind of conception stages of it, but uh, I'm finishing up my second book just now. But I have a couple of ideas knocking around for uh, the third book, which I'm signed up to do, and one of them is um, a book about residential treatment. Because um, my experience of that was profound, uh, I think about yeah. it. Every, I think about it every day. I'm still in contact with people that I was in rehab with. I remember the first few days being in there, um, and I remember all, all the observations that I was making as I went. Because when I, by the time I ended up in rehab, I had years of experience of sobriety. So unlike most people in rehab. I wasn't battling with this question of I am an addict, what is addiction? I understood all of that. It was just that I allowed myself to forget uh, that there is no using yeah. alcohol and drugs for me. So when I was in rehab, then suddenly I, I felt this immense sense of opportunity and gratitude to just do it right. And i just done everything that was suggested and and it was a, it was a brilliant experience. Um and I often thought, it, 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 you know, it would be interesting to try and go and locate the people that I was in rehab with and see how they got on, you know, how how the experience of rehab changed them. Did they stay sober? Did they slip? Why did they slip? What did they think of that? And so it would be a kind of, it would be maybe like a book or a film that was in part about the, what residential treatment entails in a very technical sense, how a day is structured. Uh, the principles that underpin yeah. uh, the, the the structure of a day, but also that in this kind of road trip where it's like traveling around to find people and meet people and talk to people um, who who I got sober with just to find out how they're doing, you know, how they are. Um, so definitely that's, that's something that's kind of on the back burner in terms of, 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 of creative projects and future. Right now I'm just... I'm in the final furlong of, of completing uh, book two, um, and uh, I'm, I'm I'm relieved because this book has been a real struggle. All books are, but but particularly this one because 
the first book was more successful than anyone would have dared to have imagined. And there's a certain level of pressure that comes with producing the, the follow-up. Um, and there was a few false starts. And then we had a pandemic. Obviously, I was in rehab just before the, the lockdown, um, you know, 2019. So it's just been one thing after another. And then politically over here, we've had Brexit. We've had, uh, we've had mm-hmm. um, also general elections. And, and so these, when you're writing non-fiction, pol- particularly social or political commentary, momentous events such as those that we have experienced in quick succession, they, 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 um, they confine much of your content to the dustbin because everything becomes recontextualised by a new event. And so a lot of the work that I've been doing on the book recently is really restructuring it, reshaping it and reimagining it in the context of this theme of social distance. Um, you know, how distant politicians are from poor people, how distant the middle classes are from the working class, how distant people with drug addictions are from people in charge of drug treatment. And that this issue of proximity looms over everything and has done long before COVID. So that's kind of, uh, that's that's where I'm at. The book, hopefully I'll be able to turn in the first draft in the next couple of weeks and fingers crossed, it will be published um, either late this year or early next year. And you, I understand that you just released a, a documentary. Is this a BBC documentary? Yes, that's correct. It's a four-part film, which is uh, called Class Wars. And for one of our episodes, uh, you, you, it's, it's on BBC, uh, but I'm sure your, your more technically gifted viewers will find ways around the various... Uh, digital hurdles that that we tend to put in uh, each other's way across the Atlantic where content (laughs) online is concerned. (laughs) So uh, these films are, um, like most of my work, there's a social and political analysis, but there's also kind of personal journey that runs through it. And in the last couple of years, with the success of the first book, um, my social and economic circumstances have changed quite dramatically and this has caused a lot of reflection about identity and class and so we decided to make some films that that illustrate uh, that personal dimension in terms of my own social mobility but also um, the various instances in which other people don't get opportunities and and some of the reasons why from uh, language, accent, how we speak, what that says about us um, to social mobility, uh, people marrying within their class increasingly, um, and then also comparing things like corporate fraud to welfare fraud, and and looking at why one is relentlessly focused on when when you know benefit and welfare fraud is absolutely dwarfed by tax evasion, um, and and just looking at all the reasons why you know, so it's interesting, and I'm I'm very lucky to be doing what I do because uh, you know I have. All my, I'm doing all my dream jobs at once, so I'm a very fortunate man. Yeah, and I, I, I tell you something, Darren. I, um, when I came across your work, and anybody that's listening, I, I do highly recommend that you search out uh, Darren Loki McGarvey on YouTube. I on 
the, the just all over the you're all over the internet. You've you've done a lot of different things. Um, everything from rap videos to documentaries to the book. There's articles that are written about you. And when I read your book, Poverty Safari, uh, I I just read it. And you know something, Darren? I I just had this sense that as I was reading the book, I thought I'm going to talk to this guy. I'm going to talk to him someday. And um, you know, again, the the book that that uh, poverty safari was that your first one that was your first first yeah book, that was my debut book yep 2017 and it is the uh, recipient of the orwell prize and and i found it uh it's one of those books the the way that you wrote it it was it was kind of a unique style um just like these short short um chapters they're very short chapters but in their their varying subjects and um it was almost like okay i want to see what's next because you know you you would talk about your childhood you would talk about working in prisons you would talk about your political activity you would talk about recovery and you're brutally honest about your your life your family um the country you know obviously um for for americans um it's going to be a real eye-opener i learned a lot about Scotland and the UK and your political system, and it was uh, it was really eye opening. But I did find that it was one of those books that I, I was like, I can't wait to get back to read what's next. And I was almost disappointed <laughs> when it was when it was over because I I found it really just very readable and very enjoyable. So I recommend that Poverty Safari, and um, it also uh, some of the things for the listeners that I found on YouTube that was very interesting. Um, after the book, this first book was written, um, Darren um, gave a, a talk to the National Health Service, the NHS, and um, it was a very good talk. Again, you talked about your um, life. Actually, in that particular talk, um, I guess it was right after the book was published, and it kind of changed your circumstances. And um, you talk about that, and you kind of talk about how that put new pressures on you, and how your life had changed. Yeah. Um, again, Darren, you do rap therapy. Um, uh, you've done that in the prison system, and that's very interesting. And um, and I, I failed to mention. I apologize, but you were a uh, and make sure I got this correct. You're a police. You're a fellow. You were like an art resident, um, an artist in residency with Police Scotland. Yeah. Yeah, was it violent Yeah, art, resident artist with the the violin introduction unit for one year. So that was basically um, just you know using using the the, the art form of, of hip hop and rap to to try and engage young men at risk of entering the criminal justice system. Um, but that was that was many years ago. I mean, that was almost that feels like a previous life. Um, yeah. Oh, just in, compared to what I do now. Uh, and the level, uh, the level of intensity of what I do now at points. Um, but yeah, I'm just I'm happy just to take everything as it comes, and I'm sure it will go through many twists and turns in future as well. Well, I, I tell you what, and I, I wish you the best of luck, and I'm glad to have been part of introducing you to the the United States, and uh, I know that you'll get over here and uh, be able to, to share what you have learned. In, in your life because it's a very, very interesting story. And uh, so Darren, thanks. Thanks for taking the time to talk with us tonight. And uh, um, so guys, I'll go ahead and close this out. You know, as I always like to say that, you know, I don't represent any group and, and Darren doesn't either. We're, now we are talking about groups, but we don't represent groups, but we just, we want to give information out that can help other people because that's our only purpose. 
is to share with you what we've learned and what we've done so it, it may be helpful to you. So if I have said anything or Darren has said anything that doesn't apply to you or you don't agree with, you know, that's fine. Just, just, just disregard it. But try to take any information that you can use for yourself and, and, and to help others as well because that's what we do in recovery. We help ourselves along the way and we help to impart the knowledge that we've gained through our own experiences to help others as well. So with that, uh, please visit our Facebook page, which is Recovery is Possible, our website, vanmeterwellnesssolutions.com. Uh, let us know uh, how I'm doing and let me know if there's a topic that you're interested in hearing because we'd love to hear from you. And once again, Poverty Safari, Safari, that's the book. You can get it on Amazon. That's where I got it. And uh, the name is Darren Loki McGarvey. And you guys have a great night and we will be talking with you soon.